We're going to wrap up the book of Esther this morning, so chapter 10. And um, I'm going to read all the way through this long chapter, so my apologies, but just to get us started. Now, King Xerxes laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. (laughs) Woo-woo. Sorry. I thought we were supposed to dance. I was confused. Anyway, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Xerxes and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. That's it, the whole boring chapter. Um, What is written in this chapter, these, these verses, are not part of the story. The story ended in verse 32 of chapter 9, and it ended with Esther, um, as well it should. So chapter 10 is like an appendix or a bibliography. Uh, For anyone who wanted more information about those times, about Xerxes and Mordecai, this was supplied. And it tells them where they can find that information. Uh, Of course, it still has a purpose, and the purpose is to emphasize the imperial authority of Mordecai. Uh, And so we see this more than once, that he's great. He's great among his people. He's been exalted in status and power. And uh, so Mordecai is a a big deal. Uh, First, we're, we're given an idea of the king's power that Xerxes can uh, levy a tribute uh, on his people and the coastlands, the, the nations nearby, and then how he promoted Mordecai to where he was second only to the king. And um, I apologize, this is the last time I do it because we leave Esther today, but um, I'm going back to the old saw that there are these type scenes in, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, where we see patterns, and the patterns are repeated in the lives of different people. So we see this first in Joseph, who is in Egypt. He's a pattern of how the good Jew behaves when in exile. And he was in exile in in Egypt, and he behaved very well. Daniel is also one who fits the pattern, and Esther and Mordecai fit the pattern. And here it's Mordecai, who is second only to the king, the same sort of status that Joseph had with Pharaoh and Daniel had with um, the king Belshazzar and the Persian king Darius. So, um, okay, so this is, this is the emphasis, and... Mordecai becomes a model for Jewish believers in exile. You speak up for your people and you work on the behalf of their welfare. Right? Any questions? Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I have tons. Um, This appendix to the book of Esther is a huge disappointment for me. Really, I can hardly stand it, and I'll I'll try to explain. We've been in Persia 
for the last nine weeks. And we've seen how this young Jewish woman rises from obscurity, uh, from her ethnic minority, to become the queen of Persia. You know, big, it's a big deal. Now, just for a moment, I want to come into our time. Um, there, there was a, a young Persian woman who came to the United States, and just this weekend she died. But she was a professor of theoretical mathematics at Stanford and had achieved a significant level of prestige and honor on her way up. Uh, for instance, she's the, I don't want to say only, but the first Iranian woman to be inducted into the National Academy of the Sciences. She's also the first woman to receive the Field Medal. I never heard of it before, but it's the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. Brilliant woman, died at 40 years old uh, as a result of breast cancer. And you, you read her story and some of her personal comments, and you can't help but, but love this woman. So here's a Persian who comes to the United States you know, and arises within uh, her profession, and she gets all the honor and credit. All right? So, so she, does, she goes where no woman has gone before, and she has these accomplishments to her name. So, so though she dies, she dies much honored by her community um, and by everyone who knows about her. This is the reason for my disappointment with this appendix and the way the book of Esther ends. Esther is at the heart of the story. She is the one who speaks up for her people. She is the one who risked her life. She is the one who said, if I perish, I perish, and then went uninvited into the presence of the king. She is responsible for the major turnaround in a story of reversals. And that major turnaround is what put her, her people whose lives were in jeopardy into a place of uh, victory rather than victimization. Um, but this major reversal required other reversals, and she was responsible for that too. When we opened the story, there was a queen of Persia. Her name is Vashti, and she is deposed because she refused to obey a degrading command of the king. Well, women don't do that. And to make sure that no other woman follows that terrible example, the king gets his advisors together and says, what should we do? And they said, banish her and pass a law. Put it in, in writing and, put, and write it into law so it can't be repealed that Queen Vashti will no longer be queen and she'll never see your face again. And they said, in this way, we will put a quick stop to any other woman in the kingdom who gets an idea in her head that she can raise her voice in her own home. They said, 
everyone will know that the man is the master of his own home. So it was real obvious how they were worried about gender equality and how they fought against that and how they, they worked to repress women and keep, keep them in their place, as it were. And Esther has violated that law. She's had another law written into She now is writing laws. The king says, here, here's my pen. Here's my signet ring. Uh, write the law that you want. So there's this, this wonderful upheaval on the behalf of women that Esther brings about. I mean, if the king's counselors should have been afraid of Vashti, they should have been a thousand times more afraid of Esther at this point. I mean, the man who was second to the king before Mordecai lost his life because of Esther. She was exercising that kind of power. And the story, the, the actual narrative, ends with her giving commands. All right. But now, as the credits roll, she's not even mentioned. And Mordecai is the one who's honored for speaking out, though he didn't. He's the one who's honored for um, working on the behalf, the, the welfare, or Hebrew is the shalom, of his people. So in regard to the status of women, by the time we get to the end of the book of Esther, nothing's changed. Something within the context of the story happened that could have worked radical change, but it didn't. The male hegemony was still too strong within the culture to trans for the culture to be transformed. So, so nothing's changed in that regard. Or had it? And I really wish I had Keith Morrison's voice to say, or had it. <laughs> he just has a way of you know, creating suspense right before the commercial. Had there been a significant yet subtle change? Before taking on that question, let's take one last look at the unique feature of Esther. And we've, we've tried not to forget this as, as we go through it. But here is a biblical book that says nothing about God. Elohim, the generic word for God, is not used. Yahweh, the personal name of Israel's God, not used. Um, the temple, Jerusalem, no mention of them. Um, a vague reference to Israel's law, but not in reference to Israel's God. So this is bothersome that there would be a book in the Bible considered sacred enough to belong in the Holy Scriptures, and yet it doesn't say anything about God. It makes us wonder if this book even belongs here. Um, but it's bothersome not just for that reason, um, or because its spiritual message is difficult to discern, but because even the most spiritual of men and women have worried about the absence of God. Where is God? In, in a book famously titled by Phil Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand, Where is God When It Hurts? You know, we almost all can think that we feel God when things are going great. At least we feel gratitude. 
we feel like praising him, but where is God when, when the most horrible thing that could happen has happened? The spiritual aspirations of God's people, the spiritual reflections of God, God's people are seen throughout the Psalms. Um, one time I was reading through the Psalms and I thought, good grief, these aren't inspired. Um, how, how can we look at the Psalms as, as inspired scripture, especially when they say, say things like, the dead don't praise God, there's nothing for the dead, nothing, you know, it's like they, they live in nothingness and and they're never seen again. It's like, how can that be inspired when the New Testament talks so much about the resurrection from the dead? And I realized, no, wait. No, wait. These are inspired. But where what we expect to find in Scripture is the revelation of God, a true revelation of God, what we find in the Psalms is a true revelation of humankind, true revelation of the human heart and the human spirit, which says things like, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. That's Job. He felt the absence of God in his suffering. Or the psalmist who says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Or when the whole congregation says, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? So the, the spiritual part of the human nature of these godly people is saying God seems to be gone. He, he's, he's not there. He, he's as gone from our experience as Baal or Dagon or any of the other pagan deities. Helmut Thielke, and those of you who know me know that he's one of my favorite theologians, spoke of dangerous pauses. Dangerous pauses. And he, he's referring to the time between when we lay out our prayer before God and he answers. It's a dangerous pause. Instant answers would be far less dangerous. When all we have after we've prayed our heart out is silence, that's dangerous, especially if that period extends for a while. And the longer it extends, the more space it gives for doubt to enter. Maybe he didn't hear me. Maybe he doesn't like me. No one else does. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe I didn't pray right. Maybe I don't have the faith I'm supposed to have. All kinds of nonsense enters those dangerous pauses. Helmut Thielke says, the silence of God is the greatest test of our faith. We all know this. And we do. The book of Esther is not about God's absence. No one is saying, and God wasn't there, and where was God in this moment? Um, it may have something to do with his hiddenness, and God does hide himself, as it were. That is, he doesn't you know, just jump out onto the scene in front of the camera and say, here I am, here I am, see, I'm, I'm doing this miracle now. And I'm do At least not in Esther, he doesn't do this. God is present, but he's not recognized. Though, like the wind, you can see uh, its effect. We see the effect of God's providence all through the book. 
But we can almost compare God with Esther in this last chapter. Um, She's not mentioned in the credits of the book, a book that takes her name for its title. She's not even here. She did all the hard stuff, and her cousin gets all the credit. Um, And so in the whole book of Esther, God isn't mentioned, and yet he's the one who does all the hard stuff. He, he receives no credit. So maybe this last chapter is here kind of to, to speak to that issue, to, to say you can't say Esther wasn't there. You can't say she wasn't involved. She was the one who turned the lever and made everything happen, but, but she's not mentioned here at the end. So in history, what happens to her? In, in the historical records that, that are mentioned, what happens to her? And, and the same with God. But we know Esther was there. We can know that God was there also. But it's a sad truth that God does not always get the credit that he deserves. He does not always get our thanks and our praise. Splendor and majesty are before him, said the psalmist. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. I was listening uh, one Sunday morning to a Pentecostal preacher and, uh, you know, in the Pentecostal church, the, the, the old school, there's this beautiful, well, it was beautiful if you're raised in it. I don't think it'd be beautiful here today, so keep your mouth shut. But this beautiful dialogue between preacher and, you know, preachee or whatever. Um, and the preacher's looking for encouragement. So sometimes they don't go fishing for it. They just ask for it. Can I, can I get an amen? amen. Yes, yeah, see, don't shout. Right, don't do that. Um, uh, I don't need encouragement. Don't encourage me. <laughs> so, this, so this preacher is, is, is telling this story. He says, you know, there was a preacher who went fishing with a deacon, and, and uh, they're, they're both rather competitive, and the deacon catches a fish. He starts to reel it in. He's a big smile on his face. I got the big one. And uh, before he can get it in the net, it gets off the hook and swims away, and he lets out an expletive that echoes across the lake to all the shores. And the, the preacher looked at him and said, brother, 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 brother. A little while later, same thing happens. Deacon hooks fish. It gets away, lets out another bad word. And the preacher says, brother, brother, brother. Then the preacher hooks a fish, and it fights, and he knows it's big. And he's thinking, I'm being vindicated here. You know, my, my exhortation, my rebuke of the deacon, everything, it's all falling into place. And just as he pulls it up to get his net under it, the fish gets off the hook and swims away. And the preacher looks at the deacon and he says, somebody ought to say something. <laughs> so... This is how the preacher is encouraging his congregation to respond to him. And there's this wonderful psalm, Psalm 107, and I've titled it in my Bible, Somebody Ought to Say Something, because it talks, it, it goes through these people who've had these different experiences, some who survived a, a desert ordeal, sailors at sea, prisoners uh, who finally are set free. And, and all of them, uh, he says, let them give thanks to the Lord. He's saying somebody ought to say something. These people need to extol God for his kindness and his, his good acts to the children of men. 
So, so oftentimes somebody doesn't say something and God does not get the credit even though he's been there all the way through and he's answered prayer. We've seen things happen so naturally that we don't realize it was God working those things together to make the outcome in our favor. We just see it as nature running its course. But you know, nature has options. And it can run against us as easily as for us. Now I want to throw this out. You might throw it out too, that's fine. Um, there are times when the absence of God is good for us. A man wrote to the abbot, John Chapman, and said, hey, abbot. <laughs> no, not really. Um, I'm sorry. He complained of feeling like he was being pushed along by God and he had no idea where he was going or where he was being taken. And Chapman, and, and he said, it is very trying after a while. And Chapman responded, only because you expected something else. You know, if, if you had known what to expect and then that had occurred, it would not have been trying. It would have been exactly as you predicted. God's silence drives us crazy only because we expected something else. Naaman was an Assyrian general who had leprosy and he found his way to Elisha, the prophet, and uh, he knocked on Elisha's door and a servant answered. And Naaman said, tell your master that the general of the Assyrian army is here and needs to be healed of his leprosy. And so the Syrian takes off and then he comes back and says, Elisha tells you to go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River and take two aspirin, call him in the morning. Um, and Naaman is furious. He says, I thought the prophet would come out and wave his arm over the leper and, and you know, do an incantation and heal him. And he goes off in a huff. Um, he had expectations. And because Elisha did not fulfill those expectations, he's all upset. Fortunately, he had servants who were more cool-headed. They said, look, if the prophet asked you to do some great thing, you would have been proud to do it. He's asking you to do some simple, humble thing. Just go do it. He did it. He was healed. That's the end of that story. But God's absence is good when the God we assumed would perform in a certain way, respond predictably. The God that we could summon and control because we had all the doctrine from scripture that says this is what God will do if you just do this is not the true God. The, the God that we keep like a genie in the bottle is not the true God. We can never force his hand. We, we can never hold him to anything. Now God, you said It's a good thing when the absent God is not the true God. And now we have to sit in silence and wait for the true God to respond. Because then we have to take God on his terms rather than ours. Okay. Um, 
I will tell you, some, some days I'd rather have the God of my understanding, the, the, the God of, of my creation. I'd rather have a God created in my image that said, oh, Chuck, I fully understand. Let me use my omnipotence to make you wealthy. Um, you know, or, or whatever, you know, to resolve all these issues. Um, he'll never be that. God created in my image. When God seems absent, be with what is present. Whatever is in the here and now of your immediate experience. Be mindful of sound because God is always speaking. Be mindful of breath because each one is his gift in the present moment. Years ago, Francis Schaeffer published a book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And it was a response to how he perceived um, the youth generation of the late 60s and early 70s uh, that he saw was denying the existence of God and denying that God speaks. So it sounds promising, doesn't it? He is there and he's not silent. You know, if, if he had just written that title and put it in like a Christian fortune cookie, it would have gone viral. I mean, it would, that would have been awesome. Unfortunately, he wrote a book. And the chapter titles reveal how he addressed his topic. Okay, here's the book that's going to explain to you he is there and he's not silent. The metaphysical necessity, chapter one. The moral necessity, chapter two. The epistemological necessity, <laughs> colon, the problem. The epistemological necessity, colon, the answer. So it's great if you got the problem, you, got, you also get the answer. All for 595, back in those days. Um, we can see that he is resolving the problem with philosophical proofs. Right? It's very theological, very th uh, philosophical. And it's very dry and leaves me cold. This rational response to our emotional experience regarding God and our spiritual experience of God is not very satisfactory. Uh, it's not what you want to tell someone who's in a lot of grief or pain. Why? Stand with a parent by their child's graveside and they're asking you why. Say, well, let me tell you about the metaphysical necessity. And, and we've all, I think, suffered enough in this life to want something more than logical explanations. And I will go so far as to say as even biblical explanations. Please, right now, don't tell me what God is trying to do in my life. And if, like Job, I say angry words about God, let me vent. God understands. I mean, Job says that to his friends. You should, you should let an angry man go on and on. I don't find warmth in Schaefer's book. I find warmth in story, even a story that doesn't necessarily mention God. What is the book of Esther, you know, now that we're through with it? I don't know for sure. I don't know everything. I know it's a thought bomb. 
Um, and what I mean is that it enters the imagination like a seed, maybe like one of Jesus' parables. Um, it is true that Esther was an anomaly, that she broke the conventional rules regarding what a woman could do and could not do, that she exercised a, an authority that had only been reserved for men. And in doing so, she brought a feminine quality to that authority. You may not see it. You may, you may look back and say, whoa, man, she was as rough and brutal as any man who wielded power. But I think we, we need to read more closely. But Esther, though she's an anomaly, she wasn't the first woman to, to cross this line. There's another premier example in the prophet, prophetess, uh, Deborah. And God spoke to her, and she summoned Barak. He was a soldier of Israel. And, and she said to Barak, hasn't God told you to go and to drive out uh, uh, Sisera and his army and, and uh, the armies of the king of Hatzor? And Barak brave man that he was, said, well, I'm not going unless you go with me. And Deborah said, fine, I'll go with you. I mean, you're the one with the inspiration. You're the one who's hearing God. You go with me. You know, you know, it's like having the goose that lays the golden eggs. Don't just give me the golden eggs. Don't, don't just tell me what God's prophesied. You come with me. And she goes, fine, I'll go with you, but you need to understand this. Uh, she actually says it better than I can. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. So here are two women, Deborah, the prophetess, which, again, that was not unique in all of Israel's history, but it was significant enough to stand out. And then... Um, J.L., who actually defeated Sisera. Two women, uh, out, of, out of place for women in Hebrew scriptures and in that culture and time. But, but they also are, are thought bombs. Um, they did not immediately change their culture, but they planted a seed. Every significant change in culture or person's life, in your life, in my life, begins with the imagination. Somebody thinks it could be different. It does not have to be like this. It could be different. African slaves could become American citizens. What would that look like? Someone imagined that. For us, it's hard to imagine anything else, right? But when it was first imagined, it was, it was considered ridiculous. In fact, we know many people hated and fought that thought. Women could have equal rights with men. Women could have the vote, could, could be able to vote. In fact, anyone who's not a landowner could cast a ballot not just the landowners. Early in American history, it was only landowners who could cast ballots. You renters, hmm, your ballot doesn't count. 
Um, many, now as a result of these thought bombs over time that had people imagining what could a, a woman do, has in our own time, well obviously many changes, but think of the Jewish women. I think of Golda Meir, a, a brilliant diplomatic woman who led Israel during a critical period of history and gained international respect. Today, <clears throat> if we look around, the chairwoman of the United States Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, is Jewish. The COO of Facebook, a female Jewess. The CEO of YouTube, a female Jewess. And two associate superior or Supreme Court judges are Jewish women. So, you know, now there's, just, there's no ceiling. You know, except maybe in some pockets of the U.S. or in some, of, some pockets still in our mind. And what we need are the seeds. We need to seed our imaginations of what could be. What can we imagine? A few weeks ago in our Sunday night group, we were talking about the Jesus movement. People had questions, and I had like a 45-minute answer. And, and this is a discussion group, you know, so I, I, I do this. I, I tend to hog. Um, but it was, it was fun for me to go back and remember the spontaneity, the way we listened to the Holy Spirit, or, or didn't listen, we just acted and the Holy Spirit was there. Um, the, the numbers of people who were coming to faith in Jesus and how communes were sprouting up all over Southern California. You know, how much of it came out of my dad's church? Um, how much of it came... It, the Jesus movement was considered a West Coast phenomenon that crossed the nation and jumped the Atlantic, but it also jumped the Pacific because there was a similar thing going on in Australia at the time, though we were less aware of it. We just weren't getting information from down under. Is also happening in North Africa and South Africa. Not to the crazy, ex wild extent of here in Southern California, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> radical and insane extent. But enough to uh, notice. 1972. Now, this is early on in the Jesus movement. Mike Iaconelli, and I could tell you stories about him, a very funny guy, and a, a very very good man, a man I, I uh, deeply respect. He was publishing a satirical Christian magazine called The Wittenberg Door. <laughs> and in 1972, he wrote an article entitled Obituary for the Jesus Movement. Now, I think that was premature. Um, it was kind of like uh, uh, Einstein... With, no, um, Mark Twain, who, who published uh, announcements of my death have been greatly exaggerated or something to that effect, because uh, here he was still writing and still alive. But it was premature by most counts. However, not, not long after that, around that time, one of the leaders of the Jesus movement in Northern California, uh, actually in Berkeley, Jack Sparks, 
joined with several other well-known evangelical leaders, um, John Gilquist Lawson, um, John Braun, a few others that I remember from my, my childhood. And they formed a new Orthodox church that sought acceptance with the Eastern Orthodox Church over time. But they went completely Orthodox. And to see them in long beards and robes, well, you know, they're still hippies at heart. But um, the Shiloh Commune in Eugene, Oregon, about the same time, a little bit, a little bit after, degenerated through internal corruption. The music and messages of the Jesus movement became commodified and actually became big industries, or they were co-opted by big industries, industries that already existed but said, hey, there's a market we haven't tapped. So um, as I look back at the Jesus movement and then what's happened since and where we are today, you know, there's this nostalgic memory. I mean, even today, a, a thought flashed back to me. Um, and I, I felt a feeling that I had felt 40-some years ago. The week after we talked about the Jesus movement, I heard that Greg Laurie and his Harvest Church had joined the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. <laughs> wow. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> when Greg first went to Riverside, well, like me, uh, he had hair down to his shoulders. And also like me, the more his forehead grew, um, the shorter he had to cut his hair. But I mean, he, he, he was almost a quintessential prototype of the, of the hippie Christian of the Jesus movement. And he's just joined the Southern Baptist Church or convention. Remarkable. So can we imagine a new openness to God, a new freshness of God's spirit sweeping through youth culture today? Can we Im imagine something that, that ignites uh, a similar response that's not so rationalized as evangelicalism has become, not so commercialized and politicized as it's become, but something that, that doesn't have all those constrictions and constraints. You know, the, the hippies, they weren't about conforming to establishment culture. They weren't about the plastic society. They were about non-conforming. Non so I wonder, can I be someone who... They, they went to the places where believers lived in total devotion to God, and they sat at their feet, and they prayed the way they prayed, sometimes in long periods of silence. They, they behaved as they behaved, and they, they reconnected with God. So some of these burned out, kicked out, disenfranchised believers that I've met, who I have known 
from the past, when I've bumped into them, I find that they have found their way to the road that we are on, this road, the road to Emmaus, traveling together in our spiritual journey, walking with Jesus, hanging on every word, and allowing our hearts to burn, allowing ourselves to feel, to be, and to be mindful of the feeling in this moment. Can you and I be examples for them? Can we speak out for them? Can we work for their welfare? Can we help them dream? Would you stand with me, please? I think so, but you know, just use your imagine, imagination a bit. Everything's possible. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.